The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. a moment to get set up with the several devices that are available up here in the pulpit, the little clicker thingy as I refer to it. Uh, I'm not as used to as probably I should be by this point, but nonetheless, I am thrilled to be here. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you don't mind, open with me the book of Mark. When you get there, Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, we're going to be focusing our attention once again this evening from Mark chapter 12. Basically, the text of Mark chapter 12, verses 28 uh, through verse 30. So Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. Tonight, we're moving a step farther than we did on yesterday, and that is we're focusing our attention on that four-part, and that's how Mark accounts it, four-part pattern from verse 30 specifically, and that is when Jesus told those individuals, and we'll discuss more who they were and who they are in just a moment, but when he told the individuals there face-to-face, pointedly and personally, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And then the additional commandment, unfortunately we won't have time to get to, listed there in the next verse, verse 31, and love thy neighbor as thyself. I hope that if you've had a day today, that your day has been mainly and primarily focused on the Lord. I appreciated the song that was led just then. He is my everything because basically, if you want to summarize what verse 30, Mark chapter 12, as well as Luke chapter 10, verse 27, as well as Matthew chapter 22, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 6, uh, mean, that's what it means. It means the Lord God himself should be, ought to be, our everything okay so i want you to just consider that in your mind keep that in the back of your mind no matter what part of this we're discussing that he ought to be our everything and in this case concerning this topic he is the thing that we ought to love with every facet with every fiber with every part of our being we ought to love god and love him first and above everything else so what we're going to be doing tonight is exactly exactly what we done on yesterday we're using the same outline tonight as we did on yesterday and we will use the same outline tomorrow and the next evening lord willing we gather here for that and that is we're going to do these two main things first off we're going to make examination of the text and i told you what that was but that just means we're going to use this book right here we're going to take the text in front of us and we're going to delve into it and look for two things primarily we're going to start out looking for context What does this verse say, but really, what does this verse say in light of the context of it? What is around it? How does what is said both prior to and in some cases behind it, how is that going to affect our thinking and our understanding? And more importantly, probably even for them, how did it affect the understanding of the people to whom it was directly and firstly, and that may not be a real word, but I'm going to use it, and firstly addressed? So we'll look at the context. Then we're going to look at the text. And that is to take verse 30, again, inside of that context, and use those phrases and discuss each and every one of these things individually and apply them to the people to whom they were first directed and then apply them to our lives. And that's where we move into the next part of this, as you see it. And that is not only the examination, but the education. How important it is for someone who is wanting to know any subject particularly for the Bible, 
to get to know that subject and then to use that subject to educate themselves or to be educated by those things so that they can use them. And then that's where we break that one in half as well to not only have the expression, which really for us will just be one formatted statement to allow us to understand what it means to have a love of the soul for God and then finalize that by talking about the exercise. What can we do with what we know? And that's how we need to leave here tonight because there has to be an application or an education of those things. So let's go back. You've got your Bibles open, hopefully, and all ready to Mark chapter 12. Let's scan back across the page again as we did on yesterday. And let's be reminded of the groups of people that are present when this specific context is taking place. And really, you've got to go back uh, several more chapters than we will. But in Mark chapter 11, in verse 18, right across the page for me, here's what it says. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, that is Jesus, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. If you want to get down to a root cause of what the issue was, the mental, the emotional issue, really they didn't understand it, but the spiritual issue was with all these people that were in the presence of Jesus on this occasion, it comes down to that. They were astonished at his doctrine. Now they may have hated him. They may have despised him. They may have disagreed and as they would do, argue and accuse him of what he had done and what he was doing and what he was trying to deliver. But when you boil it all down, run it through a funnel, drop it out there in the bowl, it all came down to the fact he blew their minds. Now on that one hand, that sounds to be, and in many cases for them I'm sure was, a negative aspect. But friends, you understand what I'm about to say, and that is for us looking at this, looking back to this in the vision and the revision that we have of it, to continue to account and to boil back upon it ourselves, we know that to be astonished by the life and the living of our Lord right here is a wonderful thing. To be able to think about, to consider, to delve into what it would be like to be in His presence physically. We don't actually have to wonder because we're in His presence spiritually as we read it off these pages. And that's how important the Bible is. That's how great and wonderful the Word of God is as it stands. But these people, again listing them, chapter 11 and verse 27, and came again unto Jesus uh, and came again into Jerusalem, and as they were walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And of course, they start with their accusation, their questioning, their uh, uh, interrogating, really, literally here of him. And I told you on yesterday that group, verses 27 through 33, is basically the Jewish Sanhedrin. That is the hierarchy, the supreme authority, at least so they supposed of themselves, the supreme authority of the Jews consisted of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which were made up primarily of those three groups, reading them again off the page, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. Now among that number, there were the ones we're about to see, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, and actually a few more groups than that. But the Jewish Sanhedrin, and this is what they questioned him about, they questioned him specifically, verses 27 to 33, about his authority. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. 
Moving on in this, we not only see that group, chapter 12, verse 13, you might recall from yesterday, and they send unto him of the certain of the Pharisees, that's the secondary group, and of the Herodians, watch this phrase, to catch him in his words. Now we made the emphasis yesterday, and we'll mention it again, verse 18, as well as in verse 28 of chapter 12, that those two specific groups, the Sadducees as well as the Pharisees, which are really what's a part of verse 28, and the scribes, that they came and asked him a question. And you may remember the illustration of that, the literally, literacy of that, and that was when they asked him a question, they weren't being friendly. They weren't trying to make friends. They weren't trying to be buddy-buddy and, and put their arm around Jesus and ask him legitimate, in most cases, honest questions, albeit I do think the scribe in 28 is getting there. They were asking him. They were interrogating him. They were accusing him. The literal word meant they stood above him. They stood over him. And so read the words that they say in the context of verses 13 to 17, which we will in a moment, in its entirety. And think about that attitude. Then in verse 18, the next group of these, and then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying, and then verse 28 I just referenced, and one of the scribes came, having heard their reasoning to gather together, Perceiving that he had answered them well, ask him, again, accusation to Lord over, literally to accosted him, and ask him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, with that being said, let's go ahead and start to consider the group to which we're speaking tonight. On yesterday, we ended our time together by making the point that the Pharisees, in the context of really verse 27 as a subgroup, and really verse 13 as a major group, and even again as a subgroup of verse 28 and forward, the Pharisees were those who had questions about priority. They were literally asking Jesus, which is the first which is the primary, which is a priority commandment of them all. And their assumption was that Jesus would choose anything but what they had chosen. That Jesus would in some way, and they had a pretty good, if you want to call it this, odds in their favor situation of assuming that Jesus would go against either the, the uh, Sanhedrin, or the Pharisees, or the Herodians, or the Sadducees. Because their varied opinions were all present. And the assumption was that he's going to say the greatest commandment is blank or X, and then we're going to turn and reply back to that and say, buddy, you are wrong. You are not understanding what we seek. You are not applying the things of this life that we understand. And you are certainly not doing it in the way that we understand it. And remember that group, that is the Pharisees, were considering priority because of their pride. Hence the concluding formidable statement in that expression was that Christianity is a religion of emotion. If the heart 
is not in it, then there is no love for God. And certainly no love to others. Now, even farther. Verse 13 of chapter 12. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Something that I don't see on the surface, that I'm appreciative of the fact that this Basically, this a topic was a sign slash suggested. Again, thank you for that. That I didn't necessarily notice on the surface of this that I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative that God's Word is what it is and I can now begin to see. And that's only beginning. But that is to be reminded of what a tremendous feat, for lack of better terms, it was. And that's not F-E-E-T. That's the other way you spell it, however that is. What a tremendous accomplishment, albeit a negative one it was. For these specific groups, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Herodians, to gather together as they did. Particularly in the case of the group we're discussing for the most part tonight, and that is not the Pharisees listed in verse 13, but the Herodians. Now, Question comes to mind, at least it has for me, for about two and a half weeks. And if I went home or to the hotel tonight, it would still be in my mind. And I would still wonder and still be concerned who in the world were the Herodians. I know you can read every single word of this. I can't either. Basically, in a nutshell... Just as the Sadducees, I should say the Pharisees, were filled with pride and piety, the Herodians were filled with political things. They were actually, and there's been a great divide in this, and, and I've learned that over time by uh, just researching and searching, and, and maybe researching is better because I've re and re and researched such, and basically everyone comes to agreement to the fact they're not even sure if the Herodians could even have been called a religious sect. Now you would assume if they've come into the... Uh, Proverbially the room, they're outdoors I would assume, but if they come in the presence of Jesus and they are gathered together in a coercive and a conglomerate effect or effort with the Pharisees, then like the Pharisees, they must be religious people. They must be a part of the Jewish overhead or oversight and they must be the types of people very much like the Pharisees that we mentioned on yesterday who were basically popping their proverbial suspenders or pulling their lapels or their robes and who were cowering down over people laying their authority upon those people and that that's what they did and that's all they did and they were concerned really honestly we don't give the Pharisees enough credit they were really concerned about God and they really had a concern about what was happening here and that this supposed Messiah had come into their presence and told them that He was the Savior of the world in spite of the fact in their understanding of the law of Moses, which they chose to miss, didn't in their mind seem to describe such. And Jesus was not what they were expecting. 
the Herodians were not quite even there. They were basically, in a nutshell, not so much a religious group, albeit they were to an extent. They were more of nothing but a political group. They, by their name even and the understanding of such, they gave their tribute, they gave their honor, they gave their uh, glory not to the God of heaven as much as they were giving that honor and that glory and that tribute to Herod. And if you want to learn the details of that, if you're in Mark chapter, one, uh, chapter 11, that's where I am, 11 and 12, right here on this page, start turning to the left with me. Just keep turning very slowly back to the left, just a bit. I'll tell you exactly where we need, I'll just show you where we need to get. Right there. See that blank page? These sects of people, particularly the Herodians, got their beginning pre-Christian age. You say, of course. No, no, no. They got their beginning post-Mosaic age. You say, what? what? <laughs> you, you, you know, we, we know about the Old Testament, the law of Moses. We know about the New Testament, the law of Christ. And, and you're telling us they were not here, but yet not there? They were in what is known as, buckle your seatbelts, the intertestamental period. What does that mean? Between the testaments. Somewhere in between the way that we see it. This is not chronological, I'll mention that in a moment. But somewhere in between the way we see it in biblical terms, between Malachi Verse four, or chapter 4 and verse 6 and Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, these people got their existence. In what is roughly determined as a 400-year period, groups such as these, primarily the Herodians, had their development come up. And it all goes back to this complicated stuff that you cannot see and even far before that. And that is that at some point, the people of God, the nation of Israel, who you remember way back in the Old Testament had cried out to God, God, we just want a king like all the other nations. Just give us a king. That's what we need. And God's basic uh, summarized paraphrase reply to that is, number one, you've got a king. You've already got a king. I'm him. Number two, you don't know what you're asking. And they stumbled over themselves through some of those kings that were ordained of God, such as Saul, such as David, such as Solomon, and others, up into a point that they completely had lost themselves during the time of the intertestamental period where they, not only they, but other world powers had come into effect and that which is the people eventually known as the Herods came to power. Now, let me show you how much I left out. Near about all of it.
the Herodians. They gave tribute to the Herods. The Herods, and it's what I put on the top of this graphic. Why not be a Herodian? Why not follow Herod? The Herods were the ones who, you remember, Herod the Great tried to kill the infant baby Jesus before he was ever born. Or at the, at right after his birth. The Herods, such as Herod Philip, another family member, became the first husband of Herodias. He was not a ruler. He had power but did not rule. Herodias left Herod Philip to marry his half-brother, Herod Antipatus, the Tetrarch, in Galilee of Perea. John the Baptist rebuked Antipatus for wrongly, or you might even call it today, unscripturally marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and lost his head. You move on down the page so many more times, you come into a place, number nine is what I have it listed as, when Herod Agrippa I, between 33 and 44 uh, B.C., we would call that, executed James, the son of Zebedee, and imprisoned Peter, who got out of prison by miraculous means of escape. And you go on and on and on until you get to a place where the years fall in in the midst of that Herod Agrippa I, and Jesus is crucified. And the Herodians were some of the primary political hands who would take part in such. Because instead of doing what at least, <laughs> at least, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders and the chief priests were at least claiming to do, they gave their honor more so to Herod, to the kings, because they were political. I've heard this statement in the last week. I don't know where it was. I guess it wasn't here. I would have been the one that said it. But someone said in the last week, we always know who butters our bread, right? That's what they knew. The Herodians had taken side with Herod because of his political power. Because Herod had been appointed by the Caesars, and Herod was someone in their area more locally over the Jews, albeit they didn't appreciate such who they gave tribute to. And the reason that matters is because we pick up the reading, verse 13, chapter 12, Mark. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him, Jesus, in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, I want to go ahead and clarify and, 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 and illustrate the fact. Verse 14, the statements that they make, the Pharisees with the Herodians, I would, let me imagine what that looks like. They're doing, you got him. Go ahead. And maybe the Herodians said, I'm not so worried about religion. And they said, yeah, but you can, you can make him stumble. 
You, you, can, you can cause him to fall, and you, you've got a good question. He, he won't answer it. And what they say to him about him, verse 14, is every time I've examined it, I come back with the same conclusion. They're right. They called him master. The word master right here, King James translation, comes from the Greek word that could have easily and many times is translated as Lord. L-O-R-D, Lord. I don't think, my disclaimer, I don't think they really saw him as Lord. If they did, I couldn't prove it otherwise. But they did know this. We know that you're true. We know that you're right. And we know that you don't regard men. That's the one problem they did have. Basically, they're saying here, we know that you do not discriminate. And we know that in your mind, by your teaching and by the experiences we've had of you, with you, and by you, that you don't look to men the same way many of us do. And we know that if we ask you this question, you will give us the thought, an answer that was to say, forget Caesar, throw that out, forget about paying tribute and taxes, and walk away, and then we would have you because we believe in the Herods. We believe in the Caesars. We believe in political authority. Is that how he answered? No, God, standing in a body, said, as they continued, shall we give or shall we not give? But knowing their hypocrisy, that word hypocrisy means their two faces. Knowing their hypocrisy, he says. He said unto them, why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, a denarii, and, and, that I may see it. And they brought it and said unto him, who? And he said unto them, whose image is on the superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar. And Jesus answering and said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. Now I step back from that and say, look at him go, look at Jesus. He just split it down the middle, and now nobody's going to agree nor disagree. And so the Herodians, although it, they, they, they love the Herods and they love the political things of life, uh, you know, they've got to agree with that because he said, give Caesar what is Caesar's. And the Pharisees who probably, even though they, they assumed the Herodians could cause them to stumble, the Pharisees have to walk away and say to themselves, well, we tried. You know, he said, give God what is God, and we certainly believe it's all God's. And the Sadducees down the page that haven't necessarily got into discussion yet, but are probably making their way into his presence by now, and they're about to ask him about the resurrection, then they're going to say, well, you know what, whether we agree or not on the resurrection or anything else, we can all agree to give tribute to God. But you hear what Jesus really said? It sounds as if he said, show me the penny, whose face is on it, Okay, give this to Caesar, because it's his, and give this to God, meaning nothing else in the hand, because it's his. But I listened carefully. 
What he really said is give it all to God. You say, well, he, he's implying they should pay their tribute, their taxes. Mm -hmm. But what he's really telling them is, you need to give all of you to God. Everything. Why? Because these individuals, the Herodians specifically, they themselves were loyal, and that's what they were questioning, the loyalty that they should or should not have toward earthly or heavenly things. But they did that from a political perspective because they emotionally believed that Herod is our God. He said, not stated in the verse. Again, brother, we got, <laughs> hold on, slow down, pull the horses. In that day and time, whether it be you spoke of the Caesars and or the Herods, to those groups of people in and around Rome or whatever area you're speaking of, Judea, Jerusalem, whatever, to the majority of those in their presence, they were God. They were their saviors. And whenever times got hard, whenever things got difficult, whenever problems arose, they turned to their government, to the pol politics, and to specifically the Herods to save them. Now keep your Bible open, but open the evening news. How many times in my lifetime? No. How many times in the last Year? Month? Week? Day? Have I either said or heard or thought that somehow any government could be our Savior? It doesn't matter. Whichever, if either, or, or both. Political party I may or may not prefer. Or at least lean towards. Or maybe even appreciate or not. It doesn't matter that party or that president, or whomever. There's one thing, and if you write in your Bibles, or in your notes, or whatever, write this phrase, God is on His throne. So when you move across the page, for me it is absolutely, completely, horizontally to there. 
the arrow points and says, the first of all the commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Kyrios, our God, Theos, is one Theos, Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord with all thy heart, you Pharisees. Put some emotion in the way that you live. Put some emotion and some love and some compassion in yourselves. And put aside the pride. And to the Herodians now, that were probably only one step between them and Jesus, dividing them from the Pharisees whom they hated. To Jesus he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul. The word there literally, these words being ek, holos, suke. With all heart. We had an instructor in school, did we not, Ryan? His name was Billy Bland. And he taught us an illustration, and I have left my keys in the truck, and I can't even share it. He would pull out his keys, and he had house keys and school keys and boat keys and and all, he would pull out his keys and he would say this. He would say, if I were to take one key from this ring and hand it to you, as I made this statement that you can have all my keys, would you have them? And the reply was always conclusive. No. In order to have all my keys, I would need all your keys. And he would say, why? Because you can't get any aller than all. That's pretty good for a Mississippi boy and an Alabama boy to remember. You can't get any aller than all. And so when Jesus turned to the Herodians, who put their focus on the Herods, who much of which could have seen as God, their Savior at least. And he says to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and thou, you, shall love him with all your soul. He basically said, Love him with your everything. For them... It was so. That is the context and at least a portion of the text. Now for time's sake. Let's get to a place where we really begin what I would call the education. Because when we think about the education of these things, we have to consider the fact at least that when we think about the soul, and I mean by this, this is most practical, but it's also very much biblical. When we think about the soul, the soul is often referred to biblically as being a part of something, okay? 
In the example I've given here behind me, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 represents the fact that the soul is sometimes a reference to the entirety of the man. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and then they that were glad to receive his word were baptized, and that same day they were added to them, watch this, some 3,000 souls. Now that referred to the entire man. Because the one that was baptized, yes, included the soul, and in some senses, practically, included the body. And in many cases, this is the case. That's one example of such. In the second place, sometimes soul does not refer to only the entirety of the man, but more specifically refers to the enter of the man. And these two verses here, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 18, are just examples of such. For which cause we faint not, but though the outward man perish, the inward man, that's his soul, is renewed day by day. Drop down to verse 18, same text. While we look not on things which are seen, but also on the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. What is eternal? If my mistaken idea is that the eternal is something that wears a coat and, and a tie, and look at that, I even wore a napkin for y'all. And this stuff's brand new, some of it. That's not eternal. The eternal things obviously last. The soul, the inner man does such. So it in some cases stands for the entire man. In some cases stands for the eternal man, internal man. And in some cases stands for the life itself. Hebrews 4 and verse 12, and I've done a 16-week series from Hebrews 4 and verse 12, and if you want me to begin that tonight, we can start. But for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even to the piercing asunder, or dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is cerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This verse hits the Pharisees as well as backs up to here and hits the Herodians. The soul itself is divided. How I don't know, again, uh, Brother Meeker and Brother Ryan are available for your questions when this is over. In discussing what is the different, what is the variant of the soul and the spirit. But I know this. There's something there. And in this case, it seems to be an entire life. How does that apply? The expression I want to share with you tonight as we're beginning to conclude is very simple. And that is this. Christianity is a religion of devotion. For the Pharisees, a religion of emotion. They needed heart. For the Herodians, it was a, to be a religion, and Christianity is a religion of devotion. What does it mean to devote ourselves? I don't know that any picture in a slideshow could do such, but that about says it. It means to completely take yourself apart. 
and to get down not literally but spiritually or practically to get down and to kiss the very ground upon whence Jesus once walked. Not because he walked it, but because he created it. And no matter how I may feel about who I owe loyalty to, in this case of the discussion, whether it be to some sense in their mind, Caesar or God, at the end of the day it is all God's, and he therefore deserves all of the loyalty. And when he receives such, and when I allow my soul itself to equate the entirety of my life, I recall the words of our Lord. John chapter 10 and verse 10 to pull the phrase. Jesus said plainly, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have life more abundantly. Jesus brought a life we could never know. Jesus brings a life that we should always show. Jesus brings a life that is essential mind of me. Jesus brings me to my God in eternity. That's it. Christianity is a religion of devotion. What does that mean? How is that expressed? Is that even biblically true? A few passages prove such. Galatians 2 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul wrote this, and it is completely the essence of what is being said. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have any of you ever been close enough to realize eternity? I made that phrase up. Close enough to realize eternity to grasp this statement. To know that it is better to live for Jesus now. To have a hope of living with Jesus then. And to be willing to live for Jesus now. To the place of death. And to see the gain of death in the realized eternity of the Jesus then. That's what it's like to live with a soul. Second place, I have this verse listed. Galatians 2 and verse 20. Paul there again, the penman at least. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. For the life that I now live, I live by the faith, by the flesh, uh, live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He makes life possible. Should he not or could he not deserve the devotion of my soul? And my favorite here, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Here's what Paul writes, again by inspiration. If we be then risen with Christ, watch this now. You've heard this verse so many times. Seek those things which are above. That is, look for what is above. In which Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. 
And then he says, set your affection. Now, when I first see the word affection, I think heart. True. But the soul encapsulate even more. Set your affection, your soul even possibly, on the things above, not on things of this earth. They needed to hear such. The Herodians need to hear that. For ye, uh, for, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, here's my phrase, who is our life, shall appear. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Question. Could I say Could I honestly say Christ is my life? On the surface, how easy that seems. On the surface, how simple that is. But to stand and say it with truth and not theory, it is ever more difficult. Is Christ my life? If he is, I'll show you some evidence of such. First of all, if the soul is life and Christ is our life and life in our soul, then number one, I ought to revere God. The statement here is recorded by Matthew, Matthew 10 and verse 28. And fear not the things which kill the body, but also those which are able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which are able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I've got to revere. I've got to reverence the Lord. Were they doing such? No. Were they, and the word reverence here, the one I'm using, at least the word I'm choosing, means something similar to worshiping it, to kiss the feet off. Were they doing that for Jesus? No. Not only could I revere, and that would be an evidence of such, I could also adhere. Acts chapter 4 and verse 22, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that they ought to... The, to any of them that the alt of their things which they possessed was their own, but they had all things in common. If Christ is my life, I'm going to share that life. And I'm going to adhere to the things that He has revealed. I'll do what He says. Next evidence. What about sheer? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, My dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust, watch this phrase, which war against the soul. I live in a place in Alabama's God's country. I'm sure Indiana or Tennessee or wherever. But I live in a place in a world where this is becoming difficult. That I could tear away, to shear away from self the fleshly lusts which are not at war with me, not at war with my manhood, but at war with my soul. 
Because the point of all of this is that we ought to be able to persevere. So not only to revere, to adhere, and to shear, but to persevere. Hebrews 6 and verse 19, the phrase is used, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth within the veil. An anchor of the soul. Have you ever been broke? Maybe I should say broken. Have you ever been in pain? Have you ever been in want? Have you ever been hurting for not only yourself, but for the things of others? Have you ever been in a place where I've been there for moments where you're just not sure why your life is what it is and maybe your thought from your lips says, I don't know why God is doing this too. We persevere because He's the anchor of our soul. So what is the summary statement? Christianity is a religion of devotion. And what should I do? Two things here. Number one, I have to exercise this by trusting and obeying. You ever sang that song? I've sang that song all of my life, I guess. We sing it after baptisms and for other reasons. We deem it even more appropriate or more expedient. But if you look at this, and you can go back with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I promise we are closing out here. It's hotter up here than it is there, I promise you. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, this phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 12 and verse 30 in that record, Luke 10 and verse 27 in his record, Matthew 22 and such, the phrases that Jesus pulls come from Deuteronomy 6 and in their context say this. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 6, And these are the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which our Lord God commanded them to teach you that you might possess them in the land whether you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord God with, and keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I commanded thee, and thy son, I'm in verse 2, the latter, and thy son's son all the days of thy life, that, or in order that, thy days may be prolonged. Hear, O Israel, observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that that, or in order that, you may increase and be mightily, as the Lord God our fathers have promised, thee in the land that that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God is one Lord, or God, that thou shalt love the Lord with thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and the Deuteronomy account says, with all thy might. The word might intends on mind and strength combined. We're not to either one. Why do we do that? We trust Him and we obey Him. If I trust God, if Christ is my life, if my soul is given to Him in the fullness of it all, to trust and obey is simple. But then forward from that, I also, in that case, ought to teach 
and relay. The next verses, we won't take time, but I'll pull into verse 7 really quickly. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest in thy way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them as a sign upon their hand, and thou in the frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Do you know that the Pharisees took this so literally that they had what was known as a phylactery that sat on their forehead that contained these scriptures, the Shema, and that they even took that and they put it in another form and put it on their doorpost, much like we would a doorbell, and placed it there. Why? Because they gave tribute to God. Give them that. But as they did so, they gave tribute, but not so. Much like the Pharisees who were lacking in heart, these Herodians of the context were lacking in soul. And put your Bibles away and I want you to consider something with me as we completely shut this away. I want you to take into your hand through your imagination. I want you to take a sponge. I've got mine. I want you to take a sponge in your hand and I want you to squeeze it as hard as you can. Now I want you to be standing in your kitchen and I want you to submerge that sponge into, say, a sink of dishwater and let it go. Now I want you to take that same sponge in the dishwater without any effort and lift it and place it on your counter. Now move it around. If you'll notice what's happening here, the dishwater that is coming to the sponge is now spreading all over the counter because the dish sponge has become saturated. It has become all of itself. Now you take that dish sponge, still saturated, and you bring it over to the counter on the other side. And you get someone to assist you and you have them in your home, maybe you have such. You take out a few drops of food coloring, you put that on the counter. And you try to use that sponge to absorb it, to wipe it. And all it does is spread it. Why? Because it is saturated. You lift the sponge and it is clean, but the counter yet is colored. The counter is now tainted. And for all intents and purposes, the counter is now ruined. You say, what a way to what last, the waste my last 30 seconds. If our lives, our souls are saturated by the Word of God, then all we can do with our lives is to spread that saturation around those around us. And if our lives are saturated with the Word of God, much like the sponge, 
the taintedness and the sin of this world that we try or that we often come in contact with. And although we may try to emotionally absorb it, spiritually we cannot because we're already full. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind and strength. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God's, I didn't mention this earlier, but I came here nine hours, eight hours for you. Not to bring you to, to this, but to take you to that. And try to remind myself of what life is like if I gave God my all. Three people sat in your seat tonight and yours and yours. There's the person who you could be if you gave yourself to God. There's a person who you are because you have. And there's a person who they would be, or maybe you would be, if Satan took over your life. Take heed, lest I fall. If my loyalty, if my allegiance is not given wholly and fully to God, it will be given to someone. Christ and His church are not divided. If we, if I, could only understand there would be no difficulty. I'm convinced that all of the issues of this life will be, will be, will be resolved with God and can be can be, can be resolved now. The invitation to our Lord is yours tonight. Come to Him in obedience. Be baptized and allow His blood to saturate your soul and to wash away your sins. Why together we stand and sing.